1716 in the Gulf of Mexico. Down the northern coast of the Yucatan Peninsula lies the Bay of Campeche. The coastline is cloaked in mangrove fringed coves. For decades, these sylvan inlets have offered safe haven to pirates and smugglers. The region is part of the Kingdom of New Spain, but Spain's power is waning. It is now a contested territory. For the migrant Englishmen who live here in makeshift camps, this land is a tropical hell. The shallow waters are infested with crocodiles and the dank, humid air swarms with mosquitoes. But these swamps are also home to an indigenous tree, rising 20 feet tall, crowned with a canopy of small, bright green leaves. The logwood tree's gnarled bark and tangled branches obscure the riches that lie within. Its dark red heartwood is the source of a precious textile dye, vital to the English wool trade. But its trade is prohibited by Spain, which has led to a raging black market. The illegal processing of logwood is dangerous work done by desperate men. Living in flooded logging camps, they haul the timber along muddy tracks or load it into rafts. The wood is so dense it often needs gunpowder to be blown apart. It's a hard life. The camps are rough and the men are rugged. Many of them are former pirates. They are under constant threat of attack by the Spanish and live surrounded by displaced and hostile indigenous tribes. No wonder these bay men drink constantly to lighten their load. The night a fleet of Spanish warships arrives in the bay, the loggers are in no fit state to fight. They are illegal squatters, and they are about to be violently evicted. At dawn, the flagship lets rip. A silent ripple of flames shoots down the length of her hull, followed by the sound of rolling thunder, setting loose a barrage of cannon fire. Startled in a cloud of smoke and confusion, the Bay men are rudely awoken. Before most can find their firearms or organize the defense, a company of Spanish soldiers are already ashore. The tropical jungle is ripped apart by the exchange of musket fire, but it's over almost as quickly as it began. Some escape by fleeing deeper into the swamps to take their chances in the wild. Others surrender. They are quickly rounded up and clapped in chains. The Spanish soldiers mock them. A special gallows is being erected for them in Campeche town. In this single raid, 150 baymen are taken prisoner and their vessels are set alight across the coast. Attacks like this evict hundreds more. The survivors, bitter, bent on revenge and with few alternatives, know there is only one place they can go, the Bahamas, and to the infamous pirate republic of Nassau. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. 
we'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. June 1716, the Bahamas. It's early summer in the tropics. The air feels heavy. The late afternoon sun sinks quickly, casting the cloud-covered sky in striking shades of pink. Benjamin Hornigold, aboard his flagship the Benjamin, a 100-ton sloop of war, feels a sense of satisfaction as he casts an eye over his men. Scattered across the decks, his crew is raucous. They gather in small groups, drinking, laughing, and slapping each other's backs. Their pockets are heavy with Spanish silver coins, and the whole is packed with valuables. Not just luxury goods, like Asian silks and indigo dye from Saint-Domingue, but the essentials for life on land. Flour, preserved meats, Barbados rum. In fact, someone has opened another crate. A song breaks out, a fiddle plays a jig. Some of the pirates dance arm in arm around the masts as if they were maypoles. Away from the revelry, one man stands alone, high on the quarterdeck. A bearded, thirty-something-year-old sailor with dark, brooding eyes, Hornigold's top lieutenant, Edward Thatch. Although he's better known amongst his crewmates as Blackbeard. For three years, Hornigold's crews and the pirates that followed him to the Bahamas have been terrorizing trade lanes across the Americas. Any captain on any ship plotting a course between the Spanish main or New England back to Europe now has one eye permanently fixed on the horizon, scanning for sails, and in particular, black flags. As far as the pirates are concerned, they now have total control over the Caribbean. After skirting the coast of New Providence, the Benjamin rounds the headland of the palm-covered peninsula. Hornigold's pilot knows these waters like the back of his hand. He adjusts the heading and charts a course for the village capital of the island, their home. The ship cuts through the crystal-clear bay and enters the harbor. The shore comes into view. On land, fires are being lit and the smell of roasting meat wafts towards them across the water. Approaching the docks, they pass all manner of ships. Some are brand new, recently captured. Others have seen action or been at sea too long and are in dire need of repairs. This is the pirate port of Nassau. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever. The harbor at Nassau was probably just as diverse as the residents. You'd have ships of all sizes. They could be large frigates. They could be these small canoes. But the harbor would have been very crowded as people are constantly coming in and out. And ships would be there in various states of disrepair. 
Some sort of record-keeping system would have been in place, but since they were pirates, it probably wouldn't have been quite as thorough as, say, perhaps the port in Port Royal. But it would have been kind of an organized chaos in the harbor of Nassau. As the pirate crew makes fast the Benjamin, Hornigold steps down onto the Nassau dock and signs the haphazard log presented to him. He looks about, taking in the sights and sounds of the makeshift pirate port. Bobbing cheerfully about the bay are flashes of color, the ensigns and flags of various nations and colonies. But there's one flag that dominates, the black flag. Sometimes called the banner of death, embroidered with skulls, an hourglass, crossed swords or bleeding hearts, always set on a background of deathly black. In this harbor, the Jolly Roger reigns supreme. Hornigold is essentially the founder and de facto leader of the booming pirate settlement on Nassau. As far as you can call it a settlement, anyway. When one first arrived in Nassau, the pirate kingdom, they probably would have been surprised to find that it was actually probably more of a shanty town. They didn't have very large buildings going down the street. There wasn't like a big government house. It was mostly shanties, small wooden thatched buildings kind of lining up the streets, very crowded, very loud, very busy. There'd be a lot of nasty smells, but also you'd have smells of cooking meat. Food vendors would probably be everywhere. But going in, you're not going to see a very assuming place. All these small buildings will have been built very quickly with whatever local materials they could find. In some ways, Nassau has changed significantly since Hornigold arrived here nearly three years ago. Back in 1713, he first walked amongst the abandoned ruins of a decimated town. The smoldering remains of a failed colony. Now in 1716, it's a bustling pirate encampment. In the absence of any rule of law, they flocked to Nassau in droves. Eric J. Dolan is author of Black Flag's Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. You have to remember that between 1715 and the mid-1720s, pirates were persona non grata everywhere in the Atlantic and the Caribbean. They did not have ports of call that they could just go into and resupply. So Nassau provided that opportunity. So it was something they absolutely needed unless they planned to stay afloat for years and years at a time, which is something they would rather not do. It was probably a rudimentary type of living, but it was a great place to gather with other like-minded people and be out of the sights of the officials who are trying to track you down. Although it may have been a great place to hide out in, Nassau was probably lacking in many ways, even for pirates. For many Europeans, living anywhere in the tropics could be a challenge. But without governance or official oversight, Nassau lacks the infrastructure and organization of a proper settlement. Nassau wasn't a particularly healthy place. There is probably no indoor plumbing, and they probably have a very poor sewage system if they have one at all. So there's going to be waste in the streets. You're also going to have a lot of tropical diseases there. With mosquitoes, malaria will be rampant. Sexually transmitted infections are also very common because of the large amount of prostitution that's happening there. There will be rotting meat, rotting fruit, rotting vegetables in the streets. It's going to be putrid. Remember, it's hot, it's humid. 
in terms of sanitation, it's just not the most pleasant place to be. The well-to-do people who had initially settled on the island of Providence, they stayed away from Nassau. It's the summer of 1716, and Benjamin Hornigold is not planning to stay in Nassau for long. He is the Commodore of the strongest squadron of ships in the Americas. For months, he and his partners Samuel Bellamy and Frenchman Olivier Labuse have been laying waste to Spanish shipping coming out of the Mexican Gulf. It's proved a successful alliance. But they are not without their differences. Hornigold is strongly opposed to attacking English shipping, whether for pragmatic or patriotic reasons is hard to know. Bellamy and Labuse don't share his reservations. They are pirates, pure and simple, the villains of all nations, without ties to any mother country. Differences aside, they're on a winning streak, and he's keen to return to the group. But first, he has a problem that needs addressing. His flagship, the Benjamin, is rotting. The timbers are riddled with shipworm, an unfortunate inevitability for many 18th century vessels. Hornigold is in luck. A Virginia merchant called John Perrin agrees to take the Benjamin, along with its valuable cargo, lock, stock, and barrel. Not wanting to lose time, he searches around the harbor for a suitable replacement and manages to separate a sloop of war from its owner for a reasonable fee. The adventure, at around 20 tons, is a step down from his previous ship, but it'll have to do. Now, he just needs a crew. Given Holnigold's reputation, plenty of his men are keen to sign back on for another cruise. Some, however, have quickly slipped back into the debauched depths of Nassau's pop-up brothels and taverns. He now assesses the colorful cast of characters populating the town. So what would a pirate population look like? Take a moment to think of perhaps a Shakespearean era style play, which has a very wealthy cast and also a very poor cast. You're going to have a very large, diverse mixture of clothing. The average pirate dressed like your average sailor, plain clothes, long trousers, some form of linen shirt, they were often coated in tar for sun protection. They would often wear bandanas around their forehead because this would help with sweat going into their eyes. All their clothes were probably very worn, so very patchy, lots of holes in various states of disrepair. They would be pretty dirty. You know, water is precious. You're not going to waste it by washing if you can avoid it. The sun is going to give lots of sunburns. The skin will turn probably kind of brown and leathery looking. They're going to be very lean. So this is one group you're coming in, kind of these dark, dirty, raggedy looking pirates. Then you have higher ranking pirates or just wealthier pirates who struck it bigger. And these pirates love to dress up. You'd have people in these long wool coats that a Navy officer might wear, or they might wear lots of silks and muslins. Jack Rackham was known as Calico Jack Rackham because he was known for only wearing the finest cloth he possibly could. Blackbeard, he dressed very flamboyantly in his own way in order to distinguish himself. The ones who struck a big would make sure that they were wearing the wigs, that they had the very flashy clothing. So it would be really interesting walking down the street, you're going to see people from the same social group, but dressed as if they're coming from very different social classes, but they're still on equal ground. Benjamin Hornigold and Edward Thatch are typical of most pirate captains of their time. They are literate, educated, 
and probably had some social standing before entering piracy. But the vast majority of their crews are drawn from the 18th century social scrap heap, the dispossessed dregs of society that now gather together in Nassau. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates. Almost all the pirates came out of the existing stock of sailors, whether they're naval sailors or privateers or merchant sailors. And most sailors were the lowest rung of society, right? You didn't go out and volunteer to be a sailor unless you were born into it or had no other opportunities because it was so dangerous and poorly paid and awful. So yeah, the vast majority were from the downtrodden classes who were the majority of the population at the time. Here in Nassau, they are free from the brutal injustice of legitimate maritime trades. They are free from the oppressive social order, the rules and prejudices that had offered them so little in their past lives. They are free to form their own society. So if Nassau itself is such a pestilential place, then what was the draw? How and why did it actually become a pirate republic? The short answer is community, really. These pirates did become, in a way, a band of brothers. They were engaged in illegal activity. It was, at times, probably very boring, messy life on board a pirate ship. But they also were in this together. Some of them said that treasure was not as important as just being on their own, the freedom to do what they want, and to get drunk when they wanted, and to be with a bunch of like-minded individuals. They didn't see themselves just as thieves and brigands and maritime burglars. They saw themselves as social revolutionaries, that they were rising up in a leveling movement against their oppressors on behalf of fellow sailors and sort of solidarity, and would express this ideologically quite often. In 1716, Nassau is reaching its peak. Several events aligned in the preceding years that have made the booming Pirate Republic possible as if fate itself was fanning the flames of Caribbean piracy. The hurricane that sank the Spanish treasure fleet in 1715 provided the initial spark, flooding Nassau with wreckers. In retaliation for English piracy, the Spanish made matters worse. Their mass purge of the nearly 2,000 illegal logwood cutters of Central America inadvertently poured fuel on the fire. Hundreds of these rough mariners, many of them former pirates, were forced off their lands and back onto the water. With nowhere to turn and grievances to settle, well, where else were they likely to go but the Bahamas? John Hope, governor of Bermuda, reasoned, it is no great wonder that they embraced the only thing left them to do. This, my lords, is the reason and source of piracy. Attorney General Richard Allen later calculated that as many as 90% of the evicted baymen eventually turned pirate, boosting the population on Nassau. One of the contemporary chroniclers claimed that there are 4,000 pirates on Nassau. My sense is that 4,000 is a sense of alarm by this contemporary chronicler that, gee, these pirates are just taking over the Atlantic. We know that in roughly 17, 18, 17, 19, there are probably on the order of 500, 600 pirates there, perhaps even more. The same chronicler decried how these pirates decimated American trade. They rove about the sea, scouring the coasts of our colonies of Carolina, Virginia, nay up as high as New England, 
to the inconceivable prejudice of commerce and ruin of our people. The golden age of piracy has truly begun, and there's a rising sense of panic in the region. Some claim that Britain's trade suffered more by depredations of pirates in this period than they suffered by their enemies in the entire war of Spanish succession. Whether the pirates' exact numbers or their threat is exaggerated or not, the fear they inspire among the colonies is very real. Some merchants try to make the best of it, willing to step into the lion's den on Nassau to trade with the pirates, but even they weren't safe from harm. During 1716, there's one Nassau pirate in particular who seems intent on tormenting whomever crosses his path. One Thomas Barrow, a pirate captain without a ship. A traumatized local refers to him as the leader of the wreckers who came to loot the sunken Spanish treasure fleet. He dislikes the bourgeois traders who come to profit by the pirates' dangerous labor, regardless of the fact that it is these same traders who keep the pirates in business. Barrow recently robbed one New England vessel in Nassau Harbor and boarded another from Bermuda, abusing the merchant captain and reportedly confined him for several days. He freely extorted others, levying charges for whatever he deemed fit. One unfortunate gentleman was roundly whipped by Barrow and his thugs for refusing to pay a 20-shilling charge. The poor merchant was on that occasion issued a receipt on the public account. Exactly the kind of shape-shifting regulations that passed for law and order in Nassau. For traders, it's the price of doing business with pirates. It's no wonder, then, that many of the American colonies who deal with the pirates prefer to go through more respectable third parties. You know, corruption and lawlessness and getting involved in the fencing of illegal goods and then looking the other way when people were committing piracy or even murders and the like was not a single-class phenomenon. Former pirate John Cockrum and his brothers have successfully infiltrated Harbour Island's wealthy merchant society and run a very successful trading syndicate. They keep Nassau's pirates stocked with vital provisions, and the colonies receive luxury goods in return, and bargain prices too, as long as they don't ask too many questions. Ironically, it's the colonies themselves who sustain the pirates that torment them. When you look at the early history of the Pirate Republic at Nassau, they were able to succeed because one of the early pirates married into the respectable merchant families of nearby Harbor Island, forming the infrastructure and trade routes and sort of delivery service and money laundering service for the Pirate Republic. That was all done by the supposedly respectable merchants of Harbor Island. And the merchants that the Harbor Island crowd were trading with in South Carolina had to know from the profile of goods that they were selling and the things they were buying that they were not for Harbor Island and, you know, were very likely for the pirate base. Many, many people were in on the take for all of this and looking the other way. On the whole, many merchants and colonial officials can stomach the pirates for profit. But for the locals on Nassau, there's no upside. Pirates like Barrow aren't just satisfied with persecuting traders. By all accounts, he also enjoys abusing the few colonists who try to coexist with the growing pirate population. One anguished Nassau resident later testified many of the inhabitants of that island had deserted their habitations for fear of being murdered. 
Barrow, like many pirates, is a braggart and a bully. He even swaggers about town, proclaiming himself governor of New Providence and claims he will turn the island into a second Madagascar, recreating the legendary pirate nest of old. No doubt the boasts of this arrogant ingrate eventually reach the ears of Thomas Walker, the self-styled savior of the Bahamas. For so long, the aged ex-magistrate Walker has tried in vain to rescue Nassau from the pirates. But what little hope of salvation he had is about to be eviscerated. In June of 1716, the real power in Nassau is, of course, Benjamin Hornigold. But he is regrouping. Hornigold's new ship, the Adventure, is less powerful than the Benjamin was. Walker notes with satisfaction the exchange has reduced Hornigold's threat. He states that the trade, in some measure, has disabled him from doing such damage upon the high seas as he would have done if he had continued. But Walker's joy is short-lived. What happens next seems to finally break his resolve. As Hornigold takes on supplies and recruits crew for his next voyage, he also takes stock of the island's situation. The ruined fort, the crowded harbor. In truth, the pirates have had a good run, but it wouldn't take much to rout them. A well-armed naval frigate or two, a company of Royal Marines, and the Pirate Republic, such as it is, would crumble. Hornigold decides to secure their future. He decides to dig in. He gives orders to fortify Nassau. Cannons are winched up to the old fort, where the ramparts are partially rebuilt. If any Imperial authority comes calling, they'll think twice about a direct assault. For Walker, the writing is on the wall. He hurriedly gathers his family and some valuables, locks up his estate, and heads for the harbor. With a heavy heart, he boards a ship headed for Charleston. Safely aboard, he holds his wife Sarah close. His eyes sting as he gazes back at the docks receding from view. Walker's dream of a flourishing colony departs with him. He bridles as they pass a captured cargo ship Hornigold has converted into a floating gun platform and anchored in the mouth of the harbor. The pirates are here to stay. In his cabin, he pens a final letter. He writes to the Council of Trade and Plantations that the Bahamas are lost. Reduced to a receptacle and shelter of pirates and loose fellows, he continues, I was thereupon forced with my wife and family to acquit the island to my great expense and damage. Perhaps somewhere deep down, he hopes his pain will yet move the authorities to action. When I left ye place and seemingly ye pirates were increasing and growing so strong under ye resolution of fortifying and strengthening the place, and haven't got to so great a head that consequently will put ye crown to some expense and charge to reduce and subdue them, if speedy measures be not taken. He can't help but think, surely someone, finally, will heed his advice. Hope springs eternal. By the summer of 1716, the freedom-loving pirates were creating a living hell for law-abiding folk. Thomas Walker isn't the only Nassau resident to finally flee Nassau. 
one young merchant, John Vickers, escapes to Virginia and gives a deposition of all he'd witnessed and suffered at the hands of the pirates, who he claimed commit great disorders in that island, plundering the inhabitants, burning their houses and ravishing their wives. Another witness spoke of how the residents attempted to hide on neighboring islands to secure themselves from the pirates who frequently plunder them, and how new arrivals were forced to join pirate crews. Most of the ships and vessels taken by them they burn and destroy when brought into the harbor and oblige the men to take on with them. With Walker gone and Nassau secured, Hornigold can return to earning his daily bread, pirating. Through July of 1716, Hornigold takes his new ship back out on another cruise. He rejoins Bellamy and Lebuse, and together they continue to pillage and prosper. But toward the end of the summer, something happens, an event which breaks the gang apart. In August 1716, the pirates on Nassau can only speculate, as a dejected Hornigold returns aboard the adventure with only half his crew. Hornigold refuses to talk about it. If his partner, Blackbeard, knows the details, he doesn't let on. Something is amiss, but that's a story for another day. Find out in Episode 6, The Rise of Black Sam Bellamy. What is certain is that after a few days of dark brooding, Hornigold goes about securing Nassau with renewed vigor, beefing up the harbor defenses, showing off for all to see that he is still the premier power on the island. Despite the obvious camaraderie within pirate crews and the loose alliances formed at sea, pirates tend to act in their own best interests. But Hornigold seems to show a unique determination to galvanize the ragtag collection of rogues living on Nassau. In fact, speculation over the extent of Hornigold's leadership of the flying gang and questions over how coordinated the efforts were on Nassau have long fueled a debate over the true nature of the famous Pirate Republic. My book is called The Republic of Pirates in reference to Nassau, but Nassau wasn't a republic in the sense that it was a freestanding government with a pirate prime minister and regular elections and any kind of organized state. But nor was it just a group of people without any common ethos. So that's fascinating to me. And whether it was on Nassau or on a pirate ship, these pirates, by definition, were outcasts from society. They didn't want to recreate the environment that they had often left and despised, and that's why they had some of these democratic principles. For generations, the ideas of democracy and ideology have cloaked the pirates of the Caribbean, the so-called brethren of the coast. So the remarkable thing about this Golden Age pirates is that they were different from the pirates who came before them in that they didn't believe themselves to be common thieves and brigands, but rather to be involved in this sort of social uprising, to be Robin Hood's men, you know, gathered to steal from the rich and give to the poor, of which we will nominate ourselves to be the representatives, and to level society. There would be moments when the Pirate Republic was challenged, where there would be great disagreements and the pirates would split on key things. But in the end, they were one community, right? They could only survive, they would all be hanged if they failed. Did the Republic have a constitution? 
Did they recognize Hornigold or any individual as their leader? And if so, what was his official remit? You had several pirate commodores there at different times, elected by their own men and seen as leaders, right? They had legitimacy in that sense. So it was almost like you had kind of an informal parliament. You had different factions and parties who had their own elected leaders, and those leaders needed for the good of all to coordinate and debate and maybe defer to somebody. Benjamin Hornigold was very concerned about making sure Nassau could be a functioning city. He was very intelligent. He was a good tactician, a good negotiator, and he could also very much see the big picture. He was very pragmatic about things. Hornigold is clearly a respected and powerful pirate captain who took Nassau's future seriously. But was he recognized as the pirate president of Nassau? And was obviously an important character within this community. He was the one who had the idea initially to go there, and then it became a hub for piracy. And he established his quote-unquote flying gang. I have no doubt that he helped to organize uh, the fortifications that were in Nassau. But it all depends on what you mean by republic and how you define that term. The way that I view it is there was no formal type of government. and. I would be very wary of ascribing too much organization and much less political philosophy to the establishment of Nassau. Unfortunately, pirates don't write manifestos, and if they did, they haven't survived. The reality will never be known for certain, but clearly there was a level of organization that worked for the pirates at the time and it was underpinned by some fairly radical ideas. It was anarchical in a sense, but it had its own internal logics and was its own community, and deep down had this roughshod, radical, mob kind of democracy and leveling motivations and organizational principles and ideology, which held as a glue to hold this pirate community together. Wherever the truth lies, the pirate base on Nassau quickly became the stuff of legend. A lawless outsider community, a destabilizing presence in the colonies of America and the Caribbean. The siren call of freedom, equality, and the lure of riches summoned criminals and oppressed peoples alike from across the region. Even on land, in plantation colonies like Barbados and Bermuda, the governors fear the pirates could inspire a revolution. The governor of Bermuda frets that in the event of an attack, their enslaved workforce would happily rise up and turn on them. He claims, We can have no dependence on their assistance, but to the contrary, on occasion should fear their joining with the pirates. The fearsome reputation of the Nassau pirates is spreading far and wide. Back in Europe, within the corridors of power, important people are starting to take notice. A pair of English sloops, Sarah and Samuel, were sent from London on a mission to investigate the rumors and to see how the pirates might best be dislodged. They soon found out. The Sarah is captured and Samuel is sent packing back to England. In the fall of 1716, Henry Jennings, Bermudan gentleman and former privateer, sails into Nassau Harbor. Hornigold's old enemy has returned. But things have changed since they last met. Neither man is as powerful as they once were. 
Jennings recently fled Jamaica after being declared an outlaw and pirate by the Crown. Hornigold can't help but be amused by this turn of events. Jennings has fallen from his lofty pedestal and now seeks refuge among the common pirates he so disdains. Hornigold can mock, but he's in no position to fight. Now with only a small crew and a modest vessel, his power is on the slide. Hornigold and Jennings coexist. An uneasy truce between rivals. That's what the pirate republic in Nassau was like under the pirates. I mean, we call it a pirate republic because there are these radical democratic tendencies occurring with, among all the pirate crews. But in reality, there's loyalties between different commodores. And some people are trying to assert that they're the leader of the whole community. But it's always somewhat contested. You have these factions. But it, again, it's order from anarchy and rival power bases. And the most obvious and enduring partisan power bases were the split between Hornigold and his faction to include Bellamy and Thatch. And then on the other side, Henry Jennings and his lieutenants and protégés, including most notoriously Charles Vane. By late 1716, many of these names were well known to colonial authorities in the Americas. They start to appear on dispatches and in depositions. Documents that would make their way to England and into the hands of powerful men. It's a wet afternoon in London in the autumn of 1716. As the afternoon light begins to fail, a blustery winter breeze kicks up a clump of fallen leaves and spreads them along the cobbled street still slick with rain. Inside the building for the Secretary of State, a valet ascends a grand marble staircase. His steps echo high up to the vaulted ceilings above, dispersing among the plaster lions and shields. The symbols of Britain and her overseas empire. In his hand is a portfolio of papers, letters, depositions, and testimonies, the latest dispatches from the West Indies. He enters the vast offices, goes into the study, and places them on the desk. Sat, warming his back against the fire, is the Right Honourable Joseph Addison, the Minister for the Southern Department, leading Whig and advisor to King George, casts a weary glance at the documents. He already knows their contents. For months now, he has been receiving a near constant stream of news from the Americas. The same issue. The same word over and over. Pirates. He is due to meet with the Council for Plantations and Trade on the subject this very afternoon. He thumbs through the sheafs of paper. He can almost smell the sugar and tobacco on them. He takes in the names of the deponents. John Vickers, Thomas Walker. He skims the charges and outrages. Hornigold, Bellamy, Blackbeard. What manner of men are these pirates? Something will have to be done about them, he supposes. By coincidence, he has also just received a petition from a group of merchants, slavers, and investors, suggesting a privately funded expedition be sent to the errant colony of the Bahamas to bring it to heel. They put forward the name of a man they think is suited to the task. A man with experience, 
and a strong stomach, a name that soon every pirate in the Caribbean will know. Woods Rogers, the man who would soon bring the rule of law to Nassau. Next week on Real Pirates, we trade in Ho Ho Merry Christmas for a Yo-Ho and a bottle of rum with a pirate holiday special. Pirates love to party all year round. But what did they do at Christmas? Find out how a heady mix of rum punch, fancy dress, and enslaved musicians quickly descends into mayhem. How a mutiny can be staved off with copious amounts of wine. And how sailors on shore leave is one thing, but a big night out in the pirate port of Tortuga is something else altogether. That's next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Produced and written by McAllister Beckson. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Edited by Rob Plummer and Carla Flores. Sound design by Matias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan.